You got your clocks set ahead? Way to go. I want to talk to you this morning about envy and rivalry. I think I first learned about envy and rivalry when my parents had my brother and I share a bedroom. I think I've always actually struggled with kind of a competitive, comparing spirit. A few years ago, a lady in our church, uh, for Pastor Appreciation Month, decided to give our family a board game. And she asked if she could come over and introduce the game to us, so she did. And my mom joined our family. It was when our kids were all still home. And so we're playing this game on a Friday night, and my mom and I were on the same team, and we were winning big. And I was loving it. And uh, the rest of the family could kind of notice that my motives for winning weren't necessarily the purest. And so they said, Jeff, you are like so competitive. To which I replied, I'm not competitive. I just like to win. (laughs) So almost every month, that phrase comes back around to haunt me. My family will say, I'm not competitive. I just like to win. And it's true. Sometimes I'm just aware of that. But back to my brother. Um, I, I was thinking about this, that uh, he's two years younger than me, and, uh, and we love each other now. Uh, both, both serving Christ and things have gotten a lot better. But when we were younger, this spirit of envy and rivalry was like, you could, it was palpable in our bedroom. And I, I remember thinking to myself that a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, we just were always trying to compare and compete. And um, so when I was in junior high, I loved playing sports. I loved playing basketball. I loved playing baseball. I was barely ever home. I was outside with my friends a lot doing those kind of things. Came time to try out for the junior high basketball team, and I got cut first round, and they said, outside of the fact you're too short, too slow, and not good enough, you would have made the team. (laughs) So uh, I didn't make the team, and and so my brother, two years younger than me, when he tries out for the junior high team, what's, what's sickening is he didn't even like basketball. He didn't even care. He makes a starting five. I remember thinking at that time, <laughs> And there were diff- different things we'd watch, and, and, and sometimes, you ever had that go through your heart, that err? Maybe we should try it. Err. <laughs> now, here's what I want to ask. Have you ever found yourself traveling through the land of err? <laughs> what I mean by that is this. If, you, if you've not watched, as you look around at other people, you'll find that some people are prettier, prettier, thinner, richer, smarter, better, er. When that stuff's going on, that is a powerful thing working in your heart. There's a spirit of envy and rivalry. And some of us, we're not, we're not satisfied to stop at the land of Ur. We want to live in the land of Est. I don't want to just be prettier. I want to be prettiest. I don't want to just be richer. I want to be richest. I don't want to be smart. I want to be smartest. I want to be best. See, that kind of stuff, when it's working in a human heart, it's powerful, powerful stuff. It's one thing when it happens in a bedroom between brothers It's a whole other thing when it begins to creep into a church. When it starts creeping in among God's people. And that's what we're going to learn about today. 
we're going to actually see what happens when a spirit of envy and rivalry began to creep into some of God's people. And we're going to see how John the Baptist responded to that. And I got to just tell you, I need this message. I've walked with Jesus for 35 years, and I've seen how err can creep into even God's work. In fact, if you're following along the notes, what I hope you notice today is that envy and rivalry occurs as two groups are, of all things, baptizing. They're baptizing. Translated, they're doing some good work. They're doing God's work. They're actually doing something that's helping people draw near to God. But as they are both doing that, a spirit of competition, a spirit of comparison, envy and rivalry begins to creep in. And it, it potentially could endanger the work of God at that time. And uh, so today, we're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, and I want to just invite you to turn to it, if you would. And while you're turning to John chapter 3, verse 22 through 36, if you're visiting with us, if you're a guest today, we want to just tell you, you can probably see on the banners up here, we're in a series called Encountering Christ. We're actually making our way in 2012 through the Gospel of John. And uh, as we study the Gospel of John, we're trying to see what happened to these people that first encountered Christ. And it's our hope that as we study this together, that we will encounter Christ. Some of you are here, and you've never met Christ yet. You don't know him, but you're here, and you're wanting to figure out more what this means. Our prayer is that you'll encounter Christ somewhere along the way in this series. Some of you have met Christ years ago, and you've gotten to know him, and you're growing, but you need to encounter Christ in new and fresh and deeper ways and continuing ways in your life. Our prayer is that he'll take this book, open it up to us, and help us to encounter a person, Christ, through this series. And so as we do that today, what I want us to see is that we come to John the Baptist Part 2 is the name of the message. And the reason why is because we're going to see, if you're following along in the notes, that John the Baptist speaks for the second and last time in John's Gospel. John the Baptist speaks for the second and last time in John's Gospel. A few weeks ago, Pastor Steve helped us look at what he did in in chapter 1. We saw how John the Baptist came to be the forerunner to prepare. He was the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And how he pointed even his own disciples and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, that's the one. And he was like a laser pointer. It wasn't about him. He pointed away from himself. He said, I am second. There's one more important coming after me. And he said all these things. Powerful, powerful thing. Now today we come to the second and last time. And um, I don't know if you know this, but John's gospel was written last of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John wrote it a number of years later, so he knew that most people already had some details on John the Baptist from Matthew and Mark. In fact, I've listed out to the right. If you want more details on John the Baptist, you can certainly study those. But one of the things we know is that John the Baptist, after he had done his earthly ministry for a time, was arrested by King Herod, put in prison, and then eventually he was beheaded. In fact, it was an incredible situation where King Herod with all of his guests, had uh, his wife's daughter dance before him. He was so happy with her dance that he said, what, are you, what do you want me to do for you? And she said, after talking with her mother, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the crowd was too much for him, and he couldn't recant. And John the Baptist 
died that kind of death. Why do I bring that up? Friends, I don't know what you think about envy and rivalry. I don't know if you struggle with it. I don't know if you're a God person or not. I don't know if you believe in the Bible. I'm just glad you're here, but I'll tell you this. Regardless of where you are on the spiritual map, here's why you and I need this message today. You can become the biggest, the fastest, the brightest, the richest, the best, but there's coming a day when somebody else will be the biggest, the brightest, richest, and you will be eclipsed. You will have to learn, like John the Baptist did, how to fade, how to decrease, how to lose prominence. Because even the greatest human being cannot sustain their greatness forever. So, John the Baptist would soon die. And these words become even more powerful when you realize how he handled this potential situation of deep envy and rivalry. And notice, if you're following along in the notes, that in this message, if you're like me, if you need this message like I do today, here's the good news. John the Baptist shares the cure for envy and rivalry. He shares the cure for envy and rivalry. He actually brings the news today that can help us have a different heart. Instead of having a heart that shrinks to pea size because of envy and rivalry, we can actually have a bigger heart. And that's what he wants for us. And again, I don't know if you think envy and rivalry is a big deal. You may be saying, you know, Jeff, you know, like, okay, so that night, like with your family, where you said, I'm not competitive, I just like to win. I mean, is that really that big of a deal? That doesn't sound like a bad deal to me. What's the big deal with envy and rivalry? Well, here's one verse for you, Proverbs 14, 30. Look at what it says. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Now, there's a picture. It basically means what's supposed to be the strongest inside of you, envy will eat it away. It'll decay. It'll rot you out on the inside when envy is going through your heart unaddressed. And uh, I don't know if you remember from the James series, but I remember preaching on James 3 and being struck by this verse as well. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, wherever you have it, inside a church, outside a church, in a bedroom, in a house, in a family, your next door neighbor, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, on a team, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Wow. Every evil practice. Envy is ugly. You know how we know it's ugly? Maybe you've had this happen. When you're busy comparing yourself to someone else, have you ever secretly hoped that person that you're envious of would fall? Have you ever hoped they would lose or that they would, you know, fail? And that stuff's going through your heart, then you know it's ugly. When you find yourself literally looking at people as people to climb over, people to, you know, conquer. Something going on there that's wrong. And some people would say, how far does envy take you? Well, here's a verse for you. Matthew 27. It tells us that Pilate, when the religious leaders brought Jesus before them, look what it says. He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of what? I've met people before who says, who would arrest Jesus? He was so loving. He, he had such a great message for the world. Why would anybody arrest Jesus? Why did anybody crucify him? Why would they want Because of envy. You know why? Because he had bigger crowds, better messages, all these kind of things. And people are going, Rrr. 
We must get rid of him. Envy does a number. So I don't know if you're ready, but I'm ready to hear the cure for envy and rivalry. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to walk through this passage and see how John's reply can help us. Lord Jesus, only you know each heart in this room. Only you can see it. I would pray in these next few moments that you would be faithful to use your word to teach us. And we pray, oh God, that again, we would know exactly what you want us to do, that we would find hope in Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Now, if you would, if you're following along the notes, again, I've got like five bullet points under John the Baptist's reply in these verses. I don't want you to think about bullet points so much as his spirit and the way he talks. But here's some observations. The first one, if you're following along, is I know where favor comes from. I know where favor comes from. This is what John the Baptist is saying in verse 27. And if you look at the first gray box, got another uh, typo I need to ask you to help me with. It's going to be a habit here. But a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. That word, it, should be is. Do you mind correcting that for me? And then once you've corrected it, can we read it out loud and think about it together? A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. The New International says a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. And the, this, the idea here is that John the Baptist, when his followers come to him, you read in verse 22, let's see what it says. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anan near Selim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. Most scholars believe that what was happening is these two groups, John the Baptist and his followers and Jesus and his followers were baptizing within several miles of each other. So in a way, where John's been baptizing, now Jesus is also baptizing, but not far away. And as a result, a number of people are going after Jesus. And so the disciples come to him, and uh, they ask him a question after they get in an argument with an outsider. It says, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. We saw this several weeks ago with the miracle at Cana is people were obsessed with how they could be clean before God through ceremonial washing. So they had the six water jars that we talked about that were for ceremonial washing. And so they got in an argument over this whole subject because it was a big subject to a lot of people in those days. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, that man who was with you, notice they can't say Jesus' name. Here's how you know when envy is starting to work you over or you're feeling a spirit of rivalry, you will tend not to use their name because even using their name makes you go, Ur, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now let's just stop for a second. Is that true? They're still baptizing some people. So it's not everyone. What about those poor people that are being baptized? Don't they count? But what happens is that envy and rivalry will tend to cause us to exaggerate. And we'll exaggerate in order to feel better about our self-pity. Oh, it's terrible. Just terrible. And so they say, everyone's going to him. Now here's the truth. More people were leaving them and going to Jesus. And that bothered them. Sometimes 
Churches have to go through this. They'll go past, they'll go, they've got more people in their parking lot than we do. <laughs> Golly, Moses, that building is bigger than ours. It's newer than ours. Wow, they just, they have, they seem to have all the sharp leaders. You just get in this situation, see, it's going on. And basically, here's two groups of people that are both trying to serve God. Paul actually said in Philippians, he said, it's possible to preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. It's possible to do all kinds of church work, but again, by comparing and doing that, it's easy to fall in that trap. But notice, what John the Baptist does next is unbelievable to me. Friends, I just need to tell you, every once in a while, if you have friends or you have followers, and uh, they know that you're like challenged by somebody else's success, sometimes they'll come to you and go, man, isn't that terrible how they're doing so good? That, that's really a bummer for you, isn't it? And at that moment, it's really tempting to just milk it for all it's worth. John the Baptist goes, that's exactly right. This is a, this is a bad deal. Thanks for, thanks for standing next to me. Thanks for being such loyal supporters. But if he had done that, he would have made them spiritual pygmies. He would have taught them how to think wrong. Instead, look at what he does in his reply. He says, I know where favor comes from, verse 27. That's awesome. Here's, here's what favor is, friends. Some of you remember this. We studied this several summers ago when we studied Esther, the beautiful queen from Persia. And the Bible says over and over again in that book, she had favor. God gave her favor. She had favor in the eyes of the Lord. And what we learned that summer is this. How you and I handle favor, any favor that comes our way, is huge. We need to handle it responsibly. We need to hold it loosely. We need to hope in God alone and not the favor he gives us because that may come or go. And we need to help other people with the favor he gives us. That's what we learned several summers ago. What is favor? Favor can be anything. It can be riches, resources. It can be opportunities. It can be your birth. It can be a lot of different things that happen in your life. But you know what? One thing's for sure. Favor is even the breath you and I breathe. In one sense, all of us have received more favor than we deserve. In one sense, all of us have received lots of favor. Just by living in this country, we've received more favor than we ever deserved. But John the Baptist said, you need to understand, I know where favor comes from, and I know who decides, who gives it. It's a sovereign thing from God. And so 1 Samuel 2.7, look at this verse here. This is a powerful thing. Hannah, who was not able to have children for many years, when she finally was told she could have Samuel, notice what she said. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. She had this big picture of understanding who God is. And then if you look at Psalm 84, 11, it tells us where favor comes from. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows what, friends? Favor and honor. The Lord does that. This means that if you and I are ticked off at the favor somebody else is getting, we got a problem with God. Because John the Baptist says, the reason why those crowds are good, because God decided to give Jesus that favor. And the reason why crowds were coming to me earlier is because God allowed me to have favor in that season. I know where favor comes from. I don't know if this has helped you, but every once in a while I memorize verses like this because I sometimes get messed up in my head about favor. And this verse has helped me, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. I love this verse. 
What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? From time to time, I'll meet people and they'll say, you know why I've got so much favor? I've worked hard. I've met people that have worked way harder than I've ever worked who don't have the same kind of earthly favor I do. And I think to myself, that's crazy thinking. I'm not saying that laziness is applauded in heaven. I'm not saying that there's no correlation between applying ourselves. What I'm saying is ultimately God decides who gives favor. Job understood this. He was the wealthiest, wisest man in the east. And one day after he woke up, all 10 of his kids died. All this property was taken away. And eventually his whole body was covered with boils. And I'll tell you this. When you read Job 121, you realize something powerful. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know where favor comes from. John the Baptist says, that's God's decision. And I'm not embittered by that. Because here's what I've realized. I'm going to pay attention to the favor he's given me and cherish it and appreciate it and be grateful for it instead of always going, how come they've got that? That's not, that's not good. Second thing is, I find joy, John the Baptist says, in God's part for me, if you're following along, I find joy in God's part for me as a bridegroom's friend. Now this next thing he says is incredible. In verse 28 and 29, he says, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He says a couple things. First, he says, if you guys have been listening to me, you call me rabbi, you know that from the very beginning of the ministry, I have never been unclear on this. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the center of attention. I came as the forerunner. As Chuck Swindoll says, John the Baptist came to clear the way, prepare the way, and get out of the way. And he was crystal clear on that. He was crystal. He always knew that. He always said, one who's coming after me is greater than me. Now, see, this is where the disciples, his disciples, got all fudged up. Because they go, look, you were here first. You're more important. This guy comes in and starts horning in on your success. You were here first. And John the Baptist says, no, I've been telling you this. I was sent first, but I am not first. Because I'm not the only person that God has a plan for, and this one that I'm telling you is greater than me. So he made that clear. But then he goes on and says, in fact, let me give you another picture that you'll understand. And he uses the idea of a Jewish wedding, and he talks about the bridegroom's friend. Some people would say, is that kind of like the best man? Kind of, but in Jewish weddings... The bride's friend, as we learned, had a lot more responsibility. It could last for a week, the whole ceremony and stuff. So William Barclay helps us understand more about this friend of the bridegroom. He says, the friend of the bridegroom, the Shosh Ben, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took off the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in 
And he went away rejoicing, for his task was completed. John the Baptist says, you guys are trying to pit us against each other, and you don't understand our relationship at all. He's it. He's the bridegroom. My whole job is to make sure he meets the bride and that they get together. And because of that, now that people are going to him, now that people have been introduced to him, including some of my own disciples that we read about in John chapter 1 that are following him, I'm excited because that means I'm doing my job. I'm doing the part that I was called to play. I'm thankful for the part I get to play because, you see, it's an honor to be a friend of the bridegroom. The Bible tells us that in the Old Testament, Israel, the people of Israel, God's people, were the bride and that God was the bridegroom. In the New Testament, the Bible says is that the bride is the church and there is coming a wedding day where we will see it for sure when every follower of Christ will be united with Christ forever at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And this idea is that John the Baptist is going, look, it's not about me. We've all met people, by the way, who want to be the baby at every dedication, the bridegroom at every wedding, or the bride, or the corpse at every funeral. See, that's not the goal. I was thinking about this 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 morning. When I was in college, my roommate got married before I did, and so I flew out to his wedding in California. I can still remember standing in that church and watching my friend Jim as he was brought to be married to Willie, and I remember thinking to myself how happy I was for him. I wasn't thinking, hey, how come you guys are looking at him over here? Because, see, that's just crazy business. But John the Baptist said, that's the same thing you're trying to do. You don't realize, no, it's about him. And I'm full of joy that I get to be involved in that way. Years ago, I read the story of a couple who were given a special child by God. Physical, mental, emotional handicaps. And so school was hard for this boy. They loved him. They supported him. They went through quite a few tears had to explain things to him and sometimes just sit with him and hold him. But one day, he announced to the whole family, I'm trying out for the school play. And their heart just kind of sank because they'd watched how he struggled with things and they knew he wasn't going to be able to memorize all the lines or be able to have the kind of spirit he needed to have in the play. So the day of the auditions came and they were so nervous, but they had prayed like crazy and they decided they'd pick him up outside the school when he came out of the building. And so here he comes and, and he gets in the car And a smile just beams across his face, and he says, Mom, Dad, I got a part in the play. They're going to let me clap and cheer. And he was happy about that. John the Baptist said, God's got a part for me to play, and I'm so happy about it. I get to clap and cheer, and I'm going to do it with all my heart because it's not about me. The third thing we see is that I get to become less important for his sake. I get to, if you're following along, to become less important for his sake. Where do we get that? Verse 30. In fact, I've listed verse 30 in one of the paraphrases below in that second gray box. Would you read it out loud with me, please? He must become more important. I must become less important. In the New International, it says he must become greater. I must become less. The old King James says... He must increase. I must decrease. And most of the time nowadays, when we hear the word must, our ears hear, have to. Oh, brother, have to. It's a must. 
Do you know there are some people that when they hear a must, they understand that it's an opportunity. And they don't see it as a have to. They see it as a get to, a want to. And they throw themselves into it. And John says, look, you don't get it. He must. When you get to know who he really is, he must increase. I must decrease. That's just appropriate. That's just right. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm sweet-spirited about that because it's not a bad news thing for me. Now, Steve shared a story several years ago, or in the last year, that I think is worth repeating. He says, most people haven't heard of the pro football running back named Tony Richardson. That's because his primary role involves helping other running backs succeed. He blocks so they can run. Over the span of the 17, his 17 pro football seasons, teams have often compared Richardson with some of the best backs in pro football. So this guy's talented. In 2001, he was slated to be the main running back, but instead he went to his teammate, Priest Holmes, and told him, it's time for me to step out of the way. You need to be getting the ball, and I'm going to do everything I can to help you. Holmes went on to lead the league in rushing, but Richardson never grew envious or resentful. As Holmes would report, he used to call me up and say, I just saw you on ESPN Sports Center, man. He was happier for me than I was for myself. All of the running backs that Richardson helped succeed contend that his influence went beyond blocking for them. He would constantly talk to them through the game, advising, pushing, encouraging, and inspiring them. And in a recent interview, Tony Richardson said, I can't explain it, but it just means more to me to help someone else achieve glory. There's something about it that feels right to me. There's something about it that reminds me of John the Baptist. He saw it as a get-to, to lift others up, to push them forward. I love that. Years ago, I read about D.L. Moody. Whenever he had conferences, he would invite the best pastors around the world that were his friends, and he was always pushing them forward. And the only way he ever ended up getting preached is when they all would insist that he speak. But it was his idea of, I get to. I get to become less. Remember, we're all going to fade. How are you going to respond to that? Do you see it as a get-to? Are you looking for people that you can bring up and, and cheer on? John did. John the Baptist did. But here's the, second, the fourth thing I want you to see in this, this bullet point thing is he says, I'm not from above. Jesus is, and he's above all, if you're following along in the notes. He says, here's another reason you guys need to know that envy and rivalry is not really smart because I'm not from above. I'm from the earth. Jesus is from above, and he's above all. You see in verse 31, I love this. Verse 31 through 35, let me read this. Now, by the way, most scholars aren't sure whether this is John the Baptist talking or this is John the Gospel writer writing editorial comment. But if this is John the Baptist talking, this is unbelievable, and I know he believed this. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. He's saying that's the difference between Jesus and John the Baptist. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit to this one without limit. He's talking about Jesus. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Talk about favor. It's pretty total. So John the Baptist says, look, you need to know, I'm like you. I'm from the earth, but this one is from above. And he's not only from above, he's above 
all. And when you begin to understand that, you begin to look at anything that might happen to him, and you get excited. A couple weeks ago at the men's breakfast, Ken Mitchell shared, and he, he was talking to us about how we can really get to know who we really are, rather than our image that we project or the way we deceive ourselves sometimes and think we're greater than we are. And he said, the only way to really get to know yourself is by getting to know God personally. Only as you see yourself properly before God will you be able to see yourself accurately. He is so right. John the Baptist says, look, once you get to know that Jesus is above all, it'll change the way you look at yourself and everything that's going on. Because when you decide to increase yourself, that's going out. But when you give yourself to increasing him, that'll never go out of style. In fact, the world is going to end with Jesus being above all. And so when you and I do that, it's powerful. Notice one more thing here, and that's what you do with Jesus is huge. What you and I do with Jesus, John the Baptist says, is huge. Don't get sidetracked by all this envy and rivalry. It's what we do with Jesus that really matters. It's huge, and it's the difference if you're following along. It's a matter of life or wrath. Life or wrath. Look at verse 36, if you would. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Those words are sobering every time I read them. I was sharing with our life group this last week that a lot of people in the United States walk around and believe what was the title of a book many years ago I'm okay, you're okay. Most of us, as we compare ourselves, we go, yeah, I think we're all going to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a good person. And so we do that, and we don't realize that the Bible says it's not true. The Bible says is that we are under God's judgment, in part because of the spirit of envy and rivalry in our hearts. And I was sharing that a story that helped me years ago get this was of a church in Chicago that had a real high ceiling. They just were completing their building, and so the day the contractor was supposed to walk through the building for the final checkoff, and so that, you know, completing his work, he was supposed to come with the architect. Some of the church leaders got there early, about 6 in the morning, and they just had a spotlight, and they just shined it up on the ceiling to make sure the workmanship was sound and just took notes and made some notes. And as soon as the contractor walked in and saw the spotlight, he told them to pull the plug. And he pulled out the contract and he said, the contract clearly states here that the workmanship that we've done is to be approved under natural room lighting conditions only. He said, no one's work could stand up under the hot, blazing light of a spotlight. And that is standard procedure, by the way. The pastor of that church went on to say, most of us think we're going to be judged one day under natural room lighting conditions. We look around and we go, I think they're pretty good. We don't realize we're actually going to be judged before the white, hot, blazing brilliance of a holy God who can see everything in our hearts. And the Bible doesn't say, you're okay, I'm okay. Look at verse 18 of John 3 that we studied last week. It says, yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That means that every person that's had the opportunity to hear about Jesus and rejects him, that means that they stand condemned already. They're not going to be condemned someday. They've condemned themselves. Why? Because Jesus came to give us life. He came to connect us to God. And if we refuse to take what he's done for us, we're in trouble. I mentioned to you, I hope that it says in John 3, in verse 7, verse 14, and verse 30, the word must appears in those verses. John 3, 7 says, you must be born again. Not, it's a good idea, consider it, think about it. You must be born again, Jesus said. Verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. There's no other way to bring people back to God. There's no other way to deal with envy and rivalry except for the cross of Christ or the penalty for our sin is dealt with. And in verse 30, he must increase. I must decrease. That's a must. There's no getting around it. And so when you and I think about where we are, I want to just ask you, where are you with Jesus Christ? What do you think about Jesus Christ? Who is he to you? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just a moral self-help guy? Is he just a grandfatherly person that'll go, oh, the kids are just having fun. It's nothing bad what they're doing. No, friends. He sees all of this and he says, believe in me. I can give you a new heart. You need something for the envy and rivalry. It's not going to change when you try harder. You need a new heart and only I can give it to you. You must be born again. I must be raised up. I must increase in your life. You're in deep trouble. Otherwise, you stand condemned already. Oh man, I'm thankful. That would be terrible news if God didn't offer the good news of Jesus saying, that's why I came, so you don't have to be condemned. That's why I came, so you don't have to stay in envy and rivalry and the poison that is. I love Jesus for that. And here John the Baptist is saying, you want the ultimate cure for envy and rivalry? It's not New Year's resolutions. It's Jesus Christ believing in him and letting him give you a new heart and a new spirit. So some of us go, okay, so John says, he must increase, I must decrease. Yeah, but how? How do we do that in our everyday lives? It's great for John, he got that figured out. How do I? If you're following along in the notes, let me just ask you several questions that have been helpful to me. First, am I learning to rejoice when God favors others? Am I learning to rejoice when God favors others? Do you look up here at Romans 12, 15, look at what it says. Let's read it together. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I once heard a pastor preach on this text and he made this observation. It's so much easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? It's hard not to be envious. It's hard not to be in competition. But a a heart of a Christian that has Jesus now living in them can rejoice when God shows favor to other people. They can go, man, God is so generous. God is so kind. I can rejoice with you. That's going on in your life. Wow. That just shows a bigger heart's going on, that God's doing something in a heart. I'm not saying, do you act like you rejoice? I'm saying, can you and I learn how to rejoice? When we do that, that's powerful. I heard about a pastor named F.B. Meyer who used to preach in London, and he was a good preacher, but he just happened to be preaching down the street from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had somewhere between six and 12,000 people in the 1800s come to his church every Sunday. So F.B. Meyer, who had a much smaller congregation, every Sunday taught himself to stand out on the steps as the carriages would ride by and rejoice what God was doing with Charles Spurgeon. Years later, 
D.L. Moody invited him to the United States to preach, and there was another preacher named G. Campbell Morgan, and almost everybody went to his talks, but not as many people came to F.B. Meyer, and so he went home one day just really sad and really frustrated. And as he began to pray, God worked in his heart, and later he was heard walking around the ground saying, have you heard G. Campbell Morgan preach? God's hand is on that man. Can you see that? What a heart. Can you rejoice? Second thing is, do I think more about his kingdom or my own? Do I think more about his kingdom or my own? In Numbers 11, it tells us that one day Moses, in the camp of the Israelites, they had two young men named Medad and Eldad who were prophesying, and Joshua, his young assistant, went to Moses and said, Master, tell them to stop. And he said, are you jealous for my sake, Joshua? I wish God would give the Holy Spirit and help every person prophesy. What was he saying? I love it when the kingdom of God is going forward on earth. It's not just about me. You know, in the staff meetings, we regularly ask ourselves, are we more about raw, raw cherry hills or are we about the kingdom of God? Because cherry hills will one day fade, the kingdom of God never will. And we want to be the kind of church for however long the season God calls us to be a church, to be about the kingdom. I once was asked to do a baptism and our church wasn't able to uh, provide water and do it at a time uh, for six months when this person was going to be able to do it. And so we made some unusual arrangements at another church. And when the church was called, asked, because they have a baptistry where the water's always full, we asked if we could use it. Never forget what this staff member said. They said, "Um, of course you can use it. This isn't our baptistry. It belongs to the kingdom of God. I remember thinking to myself, I want to be like that. The third question is, do I speak well and pray for the good of believers? Do I speak well and pray for the good of fellow believers? You know, sometimes what I've noticed when envy and rivalry is working in my heart, I will start saying critical things about other people. I will actually pass on words about people that don't cast them in a very good light. I will do things like that. I've noticed that. And so what God's been dealing with me over the last few years is he's been teaching me what I have told you about before, what we call Christian gossip. That's where you say good things about people behind their back. I'm not talking about flattery. But when you hear God doing something powerfully in another Christian's life, do you celebrate it? Do you pass it on? Do you say, I heard some good Christian gossip about you this week? I'm so thankful God's working in your life. Years ago, when we were at the old building, um, some of you know my dad was the pastor there for 16 years, and he was one of the most faithful, steady Bible preachers I have ever heard. Like he's preaching out in Arizona today. And um, this person came up and they said, in my hearing, with my dad standing right there, they said, so Gary, uh, what's it like to have a son who's a better preacher than you? It was a very awkward moment. I'll never forget my dad's response. He said, it makes me very happy. I'm not only proud of my son, but I'm grateful for the way God is working in his life. Friends, I don't know if I'm a better preacher. You know what the result of that should be? Am I a faithful preacher? Am I faithful to remind you that we need to believe in Jesus 
because it really does matter what we do with Jesus. My dad did that, and I'm thankful for that. Some of you know we pray for a different church every Sunday. And if we're not careful, can I just be honest with you? That can just be a clever little cute thing that we do to make ourselves look good. But can I tell you where that all started? Years ago, I was out at a church in California with a pastor named Jack Hayford. And Jack Hayford was part of a church called Church on the Way, which was several thousand people at that time. But when he first went there many years before, there was less than 50 people in the church. They had this chapel, and I saw where it used to be. And so every day there in Van Nuys, California, he had to drive down Sherman Way, which was the main thoroughfare, and he had to drive past the biggest church in town that was just exploding at the seams. And what galled him the most is that he was going to the quick copy shop in the days before there was desktop publishing and all that, and he had to have the printer print their bulletin, but they had to have a minimum order of 100, and so every time he went to the printer, it reminded him how small his church was. So as he's driving that day, he got to Sherman Way and Kester Drive. I've been there before, and that stoplight... And he said during the stoplight, he, he began to feel a hot feeling on the side of his face. And he realized is that it was a heat of anger. And he realized the reason why it was on the left side of his face is because the edifice of this big towering church building was on his left, and he didn't want to look at it. So in that moment, all of a sudden, as God can only do, no audible voices, God convicted Jack Hayford that his heart was filled with envy and rivalry towards a fellow church, and he was melted. And he said, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And he said, God impressed on his mind. He said, well, you could start by turning and looking at the building. So he said, I did that. And when I turned, he said, what do you want me to do now? He says, I want you to pray for the shepherds in that church. What I am doing there is so great. Their shoulders are burdened beyond what they can handle unless people pray for them. Pray. Pray for me to bless that place because that's part of my kingdom too. And he said, I began to pray and something like a dam broke inside of me. And he said, I began to pray for every church in our community. He said, I knew my heart was really changed when I began to pray for Catholic churches. <laughs> he said, because I've been raised in a tradition that always condemned Catholic churches and bashed them. And he said, I knew that everywhere I saw a Catholic church that named the name of Christ, I was going to pray for them too. And he said, something began to change. Friends, when I read that, I knew that our church needed to have that same kind of spirit. Some people will go, you know, some of the churches we pray for are kind of messed up. <laughs> and I just want to be honest. I know. But what's the answer to that? What's the answer? To say, you're messed up? Or to go, oh God... Our church needs grace and truth. This church needs grace and truth. Please work. Please work in their church. You know the world thinks that we are in competition with each other. They're so tired of seeing infighting. They're so tired of seeing that. That we've had people that have come and they said, Jeff, I didn't remember a word you said. I didn't remember any of the songs we sang. Here's the only thing I remember from the service at Cherry Hills. You pray for another church. I couldn't believe it. I, I'd never heard of such a thing. I thought to myself, that's a sad commentary on our churches. We should be that. So I don't know what's happening in your heart today, but I wonder, what has God been bringing to mind? Is there a church leader, a fellow Christian, another church, or someone that God's been showing you? If you're following along, here's the last question. What situation in my life must you become greater? 
What situation in my life must you become greater? Is it with your time? Is it with your talents? Is it with your treasure? Is it in a certain relationship? What situation is it, friends? Years ago, I was invited to the pastor's conference for Promise Keepers in 1996 down at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. And we were there that day, and so there was 50,000 pastors. Maybe it was 30 or 40. I don't remember the number. It was just a big crowd. But there, they, they said that today we're going to t- 